Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. You're listening to Matt. I am here all alone on my own, but that's okay because we've got a cracking episode coming up. Today, we are exploring community benefits and the payments that flow from big renewable projects like onshore wind and hydroelectricity directly into communities. And today we're focusing on rural Scotland, particularly the Highlands, but also elsewhere. The three big questions we're going to explore today will be what are community benefit payments? Why do we have them? And what types of projects have they unlocked? And in order to answer these questions, we'll speak to SSC Renewables, a wind farm developer, also hydroelectricity developer, who funds these community benefit payments. But first up, we're going to speak to Fort Augustus and Glamorrison Community Company to understand how they have spent these community benefit payments on important projects in their local community. Hello, my name is Ian Lever. And I am the Chief Officer for Fort Augustus and Glen Morriston Community Company. Ian, welcome to Local Zero. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. We were also lucky enough to, to hear from you a few weeks back when uh, colleagues and I had visited uh, Drumner Drocket. And, and we were uh, lucky enough to hear about some of the work that you've been engaged with through Fort Augustus and Glen Morriston Community Company. I was, frankly, I was blown away by some of the work that you're undertaking. I just wondered if you could you could explain to the listeners, please, what is Fort Augustus and Glen Morrison Community Company? What's what's its core purpose? What does it do? Well, I suppose you have to you have to think about why it was set up. So it was set up back in 2007 to receive community benefit payments. Now I think we'll explain what they are as we, as we go along. And and initially, its its main purpose was to distribute those community benefit payments out to the community in the form of small grants. Um, but as things have evolved, it has also taken on the mantle of developing their own projects, taking it right down to kind of basics. It's set up as a company of a guarantee and a charity. And because of that, it has core charitable purposes. The main one being to promote for the public benefit, rural regeneration, following the principles of sustainable development, where sustainable development means development which meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generation to meet their own needs in areas of social and economic deprivation within the community by all or any of the following means. And then there's a number of ways that we can do that. And that is basically what we do. 
So that's like a catch-all statement that allows, I suppose, a Fort Augustus and Glen Morrison community company to work within its charitable purposes to do many things. So, so at its heart, it's it's got a very very strong uh, social mission statement, but also a very strong environmental mission statement. So it's trying to do these these two things through you know individual or at least a portfolio of projects trying to do two things at once. I, I think just for our listeners, because I guess we're going to keep coming back to this, but it's worth just maybe beginning on community benefit payments, which you've obviously this was set up to to manage these. So from your perspective, what are these community benefit payments, what, how did they come into being and, and what are they to you? So I'm quite new to this, not to this kind of job, but to this organisation. So I've come into it about a year ago and had to figure out myself what I think community benefit payments are. We have um, a number of um, wind farms in this area. So we benefit from around about four of those wind farms currently and a hydro scheme. And the benefits are, are basically a form of payment to the community that reflect the visual impact or the impact of those developments on the community that they're within. So usually those those would be sort of defined as an as as a, a community ours is defined as a community council area. So we are the same boundary as the Fort Augustus and Glenmorrison Community Council, who was actually the organization that set this company up to receive those benefit funds. So it's a it's a the guidelines from Scottish government. So I think it's five thousand per megawatt hour um, generated, and that's the community benefit payment that comes to us. They they aren't compulsory; they're negotiated. So there was a, a lot of work done in the early days by the community council and some very strong characters in the community council to get a good deal for the community, and. Uh, I suppose the best part of this deal is that that we get the money straight straight into our bank account. A lot of other communities, actually, the money will go to another foundation or trust, um, like Foundation Scotland, and then those communities within that area will have to then bid into Foundation Scotland to get grant funding from them. But whereas we get the money direct, and then we were like a Foundation Scotland for this area almost. So, are we talking? You know, big sums of money, small sums of money. I mean, many folk who, who listen to, to this podcast will either be directly or indirectly engaged in some form of community action, uh, and if not, they'll they'll maybe be involved in in something or other in terms of you know fundraising and understanding the cost of a project and and the value of money. So, for you and yourselves, how much are you tending to receive from through these community benefit payments per per year, for instance? Grouping them all together, it, it should be in the region of £600,000 a year. Currently, we don't get just as much as that, but we're also able to negotiate during the, the 25 years that we've got an agreement that at, at times we can, if the need is great, that we can draw down advanced years. So we can project five years in advance and say, can we get that five-year advance payment, which is what we've currently done for one of our projects. So we're, we're under the 600000 but... In five years' time, it will be back up to six hundred thousand a year, and there's more. I suppose there's more on the on the horizon. There's new farms and the extension to wind farms. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe before we get into what what you've done with this money, which I, you know, from I, I uh, chair and trustee of, of uh, an environmental community charity on the south side of Glasgow called South Seeds, and I, I know that six hundred thousand pounds of I'm assuming is unreserved funds. Is that? Is that correct? It's not, and I know South Seeds, that's a great organisation. It's not unreserved, no, it's not unrestricted. It is restricted funding, 
Um, it does come with terms and conditions from the funder. But to be honest, everything that we want to do with our charitable purposes can be done within their terms and conditions. But if we want to spend, say, more than £25,000, we then have to just go back to the funder and say, is it okay if we award this amount of money or we spend this amount of money on a project over and above that? And they just want to check that their money is still being used responsibly and for the right purposes. Okay. I mean, that's important, I guess, as a kind of a, as a, as a fail-safe, but it sounds to me in, in general from, from their terms and conditions, that has, has that been a, a fairly symbiotic relationship to date? Have, have they tended to support your, your, your actions or have there been certain projects that maybe haven't been able to go forward? No, no, they've supported what we've gone with. So, so we, we as a board would assess, say we had a grant coming in for over 25,000 from another community group, we as a board would assess that grant and, and approve it and then recommend approval by one of the funders, mm. whichever funder it was we were going to, SSE Renewables being the biggest one. And then they have up till now said, that's fine, you can go ahead and um, do that. Okay, It's just a checks and balances thing, I guess. They just want to make sure that we're still being responsible with the money that we're getting. So on average, £600,000 a year, that, as I was saying, that, you know, being with the charity, I know that is a huge sum of money for a charity, a community charity. So what does what what that enabled you to do in the, in the local area? If we start back and kind of do a bit of a timeline, uh, I might forget things, but, but it'll give you a rough sense. So early on, they, they took ownership of the community hall, which is, I'm sitting in office there now. And I suppose, you know, taking on any kind of public building costs money just in terms of running it and carrying out some uh, improvement works to extend it. And, and that was helped to be funded through, um, through the wind farm benefit money. And then at various stages, things have happened in Fort Augustus. Fort Augustus is quite a, what should we say, I wouldn't say wealthy, but there's, there's a lot of activity in Fort Augustus. There's a lot of tourism, so there's a lot of income coming, talking about. And I suppose the area has a population of the whole area, not just Fort Augustus, around 12 to 1,500 people. And they are served by... Uh, Surgery. They were lucky enough to have a GP surgery, uh, and unfortunately, that GP surgery a number of years ago burnt down, um, and it was a privately owned surgery. The, the the GPs were, I think, not weren't going to rebuild it. The NHS weren't going to rebuild it, so it was a bit of a no brainer, really. That the community company who had resources, they had the capacity, decided that they would purchase the site of the old. Um, burnt out building and build a nice new uh, medical centre, which we we did, and is now leased out to the NHS, NHS Highland, who then lease it to a GP. So we have a GP back. That's actually a two-floor building, so there's a bit more space than the GP needs. So there's some up, upstairs treatments and consulting rooms for visiting practitioners, a community room and a community office for, which is currently in use by our Sunflower Home Care workers, who the sort of uh, is the community care team for for the area. I mean, that's incredible, but being able to take these, you know, renewable farm payments that were, that were explicitly for community benefit, and, and you've essentially put medical, you know, care back into the community. And from previous discussions, you, you'd mentioned that also you've been very involved in uh, affordable housing, I think is, is right. That's right, yeah. So around about the time uh, the, the surgery was being built, a, a piece of land came up. It didn't, it didn't really come up, but the, the community decided that they wanted to buy they wanted to be able to buy a bit of land that used to be owned by the, the Abbey. But there was 19 acres of ground towards the south side of Fort Augustus. And, and actually, it was, um, there was a developer who was interested in building you know, around 70 houses on it. 
And there really wasn't a desire for 70 houses. That was felt like it was too much and it was out of people's hands if that the developer went in there. So the community submitted a community right to buy that was registered and accepted. And then they activated that right to buy and they purchased that land through land fund funding. And then a, a Around about the same time, there was a lot happening all at once here. It's a medical centre buying land. There was a community action plan was being carried out. Fort Augustus and Glen Morrison Community Company helped to facilitate that action plan, but you know, a consultant was brought in to complete it. We were just one of the, I suppose, participants in that action plan. Various actions came out of that. That's an action plan after all, and, and we took our share of them. And one of those was it was a clear, clearly identified need for housing, affordable housing. Like other parts of the Highlands, we we struggle with um, holiday homes. Um, people with more from down south retiring up here with more money than local people. So so there's a definite need here for affordable housing that wasn't being filled by the council. There is council houses here, but there's just not enough of them. So we took that, built on that, and we had Rural Housing Scotland complete a housing needs survey, and that identified it. it just it kind of focused it down a little bit more and said to you know, the type of houses we need and, uh, you know, who, what exactly sizes of families they were in. So the, the upshot was that we we took a, a small piece of the 19 acres and built 12 new affordable homes on it. It's called Caledonian Court. Well, I suppose one of the great things about our housing is that it's ours. So we own it, we manage it, and we control who goes into it. And control is maybe the wrong word. We, we have a policy and procedure for letting those properties so it means that we can allocate to the people that in, within the community that we think are most in need, rather than it being someone from a list that's held in Inverness, for instance. But we make decisions about who gets those houses. So, so they've gone to local people, and two of those properties are, are young people who, were, who benefited from another of the schemes that we have, which is an apprenticeship scheme. So we have an apprenticeship scheme for, for young folk in the area who can apprentice with some smaller firms Rather than, you know, not with the likes of SSE or NHS or anyone or that council, but the smaller firms working here. So it benefits the small firms and it benefits the young people um, and gives them a future here, hopefully. And now we've given them homes as well. So. I mean, that is, you know, you're, you're outlining, I guess, projects here which have, have looked to enrich the lives of some more elderly residents uh, but also much in terms of younger residents, and I, and I know speaking to to, to colleagues uh, who are located in the, in the Highlands, indeed the islands, you know, one of the big problems for these communities uh, is is often you know losing younger folk, you know, to the cities and the central belt. Is is that something in, that you recognise in your community that you needed to create a, a centre of gravity there in terms of employment and skills and, and housing, of course? Yeah, absolutely, and and it's like you say, it's that it's that whole holistic side of things. So we start we start off by I suppose encourage, in some ways we're encouraging the, the young folk to go off to university by offering an educational grant. It used to be called a travel grant. It's now travel's pretty much free if you're a certain age. So we still offer a, a £600 annual grant for young people going off to study. And it could be they're off on a, a daily basis or it could be they're off to Glasgow or Edinburgh. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, a huge wealth of kind of what I would primarily refer to as social and also economic support there you know trying to not just stimulate the uh, as i said fortifies fortify the social welfare and support systems in place but also to kickstart these these companies and the skills and the, and the, the startups that you see here one question i have is these these payments are coming from 
low carbon, these renewable power generation uh, installations. You've mentioned onshore wind. If you stand, as, as we were last time we met, on the banks of Loch Ness uh, and you are sort of rimmed, you're, you're surrounded by these, these onshore wind farms. Uh, so you can actually draw quite a clear connection there between the installations and, and the benefit payments. Is there any work that you're you're undertaking that has a very strong environmental and sustainability focus? Obviously, sustainable development is economic, social, and environmental benefit kind of tied together. But anything that's particularly environmentally focused that you've you've done with these environmental community benefit payments? That, that, that's a that's a really good question. We we do fund. We're also a funder, um, a grant funder. So we we have awarded grants to local organisations. Um, who 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 do do smaller environmental projects around and about? So and and Trees for Life is one of them. We've awarded them some funding for the new for Dundragon, and also in Glen Morris, a very active group called the Glen Morris Improvement Group, and and they have a more I suppose more of a they don't have a focus of environment. Those smaller groups, I mean Trees for Life obviously does, but the small community groups don't. But they do more of that kind of thing than we do. We kind of take a more strategic look on things and do the bigger stuff. That said. When we built the houses, we built them to a very high standards of energy efficiency, and they all have air source heat pumps. We purchased two older house properties within an old school, and we also fitted them, retrofitted them with air source heat pumps as well and improved the insulation and uh, the sort of general energy efficiency of those homes. So, so we work on that, that kind of level, and the same would be true of the medical centre, that also is looking at air source heat pumps. We've got solar panels uh, on the roof here as well in the hall. So, so those environmental credentials come come through to the kind of more more tangible investments. And I think what one thing I'm I'm really interested thereby is this kind of ecosystem of different community organisations that that actually you recognise that you can't necessarily do it all, or at least you want to kind of prioritise a specific kind of of work, as you said, more strategic larger types of investments and they actually partner with other community organizations to maybe reach the areas you otherwise wouldn't be primarily operating in that's i mean that's correct i suppose that goes back to when we were first set up the 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 main focus then was just as a grant as a funder so we took the money and we funded people to do things so we didn't do a lot ourselves other than very small things so it it goes back to it, it goes back to that really we don't have a big staff here. Kind of intentionally keep it quite low because that keeps the staffing costs down. If we were to start delivering more of those smaller environmental projects, it would it would take more of the money that comes in from the wind farm, and it would be, you know. So it's you kind of you've got to balance it somehow. I mean, we do have seventeen acres of what we call the old convent land remaining, which is mixed woodland and meadow. We have plans there for community gardens. And to improve the the woodland, to take out some of the more invasive species and make access better and just a better place for people to go and a well get fit, play whatever they want really. But but there will be no further sort of concrete development on that, other than possibly a, a few sympathetically designed small workshops for and a composting site, that kind of thing. So there's there's small scale stuff going on there. What's what's sort of keeping you busy in terms of plans? You know, plans for you know what you're going to do with other community benefit payments. You've got six hundred thousand pounds coming in every year. I guess it's important to have 
have <laughs> have a pipeline of projects you, you no doubt have. We do, yeah. We've got a busy year coming up. So we're submitting for community asset transfer to two properties. So one of those properties is from Scottish Canals, and that's called Glentarf House. And that's a property that's been vacant for about 12 years. And we, we hope to take ownership of that and turn that into two more affordable homes. And I, I have a, have a, just a question here in around the kind of the community governance of, of mm-hmm. uh, these, these benefit payments. So just in terms of how the Fort Augustus and Glen Morrison Community Company is incorporated, to what extent do the residents of Fort Augustus and Glen Morrison actually have control over the types of projects that you're, you're outlining? What's that, what's the arrangement there to, to ensure that it, you know, the decisions are made by the community for the community? The company itself has to elect a board of directors. So there are, the makeup is nine elected from the membership and the membership is from the community. We can, there's, there's one other appointed from the community council um, who's also in the community, obviously. And then we can co-opt three more directors on as we see fit. Uh, we've just recently had our AGM, which was, it went really well. It was a, a good turnout. I didn't expect it. We, we have a full complement of nine elected directors. We have the community council director, so that's 10. And we have three others sitting in the wings who we're going to co-opt, all from the community. In terms of what we do and why we do it, I think I mentioned the community action plan. We, we reviewed that action plan in what year will be now, it, just in January, February this year, it completed a review of the action plan. Uh, and that, that just um, confirmed that nothing had really changed from before. We, we'll do another one probably in a year's time, a new one. But we just wanted to confirm that post-COVID, people's priorities hadn't really altered. So that, that they hadn't, which was good. And I, I guess maybe just wanted to, just to end on this, if possible, is um, your reflections on the process. What's What's... What works well? What what maybe would be good for possibly Scottish government, Highlands and Islands enterprises to, to reflect on and maybe look to reform some of the processes processes that are in place. Like I say, I haven't really been. We we're not allowed to get involved in negotiations. That's seen as a conflict of interest. So the community council tends to do that part, and then there's a point at which we can then speak to wind farm companies um, about it. Um, and I haven't really been involved in negotiations or anything, but but looking from the outside as to how it works, um, I suppose the Scottish government set this kind of voluntary £5,000 figure, which is kind of the expectation is that they'll, you'll just get £5,000 and that's it. It would almost have been better if they hadn't set a figure. So it was actually a compulsory, you have to pay community benefit and then a, then a negotiation would start. But but if they've they've set this 5,000 in, and just in some ways, I think with the ease with which the renewables company, the generators give up 5,000 pounds per megawatt hour makes me think it's not very much money to them. So that, that 5,000 pounds, that you mentioned that that's actually negotiated by the community council, which for those who, who, who aren't aware in you know, in, in Scotland, because the local authorities are so massive, particularly the, the Highland Council, which covers a huge area in Scotland, community councils are set up to, to offer that that that's the smallest unit of governance, uh, formal governance there. And and you're saying the, the actual the community council is the one that negotiates with the electricity supplier and wind farm developer or hydro developer on the actual price they'll get. So it, five thousand pounds per megawatt installed is is guidance but actually it could be higher or lower than that it could be or it could be nothing yeah 
Wow, yeah, because it's voluntary, of course. There's usually an initial sort of disturbance-type payment as well. Mm-hmm. So for, while they're building it and all the lorries are coming through and, and making messes and noises, there's a, a payment negotiated over that as well, and I'm not sure how they go about getting that one. The other thing to remember here is that it, uh, if a wind farm is is built, it's £5,000 installed. But if, if that farm impacts on two different community council areas, so for instance, say us and, say, Stratheric, and Foyers or Glengarry or one of them, you, you share that 5,000 and it's a bit of a bun fight as to who gets which. Which isn't conducive of kind of communities working together and learning from one another about what, you know, what works and what doesn't in this regard. And I guess just, just the final point is, are you finding that some communities are kind of winning from these benefit payments and, and others are sadly losing out because obviously that they're not in, you know, next to a wind farm or hydro, you know, are there kind of winners and I don't want to say losers, but not they're not winning. You know, they're not enjoying the benefit. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I've seen it in other. I haven't been here long, but I've worked in this sector for quite a while, um, and I've seen it in other places. And this is the, this is the first community group I've worked with that receives community benefit money of this this level of income. So it's it's quite a novelty for me. Um, but I've worked supporting organisations where. A number of groups receive community benefit money from from wind farms within an area. And for geographic reasons, because someone doesn't quite fall within the circle, a community can miss out. And it's, it is desperately unfair. I don't necessarily believe that the impact of a wind farm is, is entirely an impact on my community. Uh, misses everyone's country out there, um, so I think it's I think it's quite bad. And I've, I have in the past suggested that maybe not here, maybe one day before I retire, I might suggest it here. Is that those communities like ours that that do get a lot of money coming in, actually put money aside into a strategic, a wider fund, and it's something that can be used, you know, to to cover a much wider area. The thing is that the the um, the wind farm benefit agreements tie you into spending your money within this area. If we can get that out, it means you can maybe spread it a bit further. And it does seem desperately unfair to me sometimes when I see it. But the other thing that seems, to be honest, desperately unfair is that it's only wind farms that have to make the payment. There's other industries I see that are, or you know, hydro does as well, but there's other industries I see that have, I would say, a greater impact on a daily basis that don't pay anything. Yeah, I, I maybe won't force your hand on naming them, but <laughs> but I can imagine a, imagine a couple come to mind. Um, Ian, that, that's incredibly insightful, and I, I wish you all the very best uh, going forward and and you know executing the next stage of your plans because what you're doing is absolutely amazing. But, but thank you for your time, and we look forward to hearing more. No, thanks for the opportunity, Matthew. It's been uh, it's good. It's good. I feel like I could probably do another half hour, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you back. <laughs> Wonderful to hear from Ian there about how a community is taking these community benefits and doing something really meaningful on the ground. And now to hear from the other side of the coin, from SSE Renewables, Lindsay Duggan, to understand how funders uh, are approaching this and the types of projects more broadly that they've invested in. Thank you so much for having me here today, Matt. My name's Lindsay Duggan and I am SSE Renewables Community Investment Manager. Wonderful to have you along, Lindsay. It's a real pleasure. And we've heard from Ian about a particular project in a particular community. But of course, 
at SSE Renewables, you have a bird's eye view across the whole piece to understand all the different types of renewable projects and the different types of communities that are taking these. I mean, we asked Ian the same the same question, but just to maybe get this from the, the funder's perspective or the, or the renewable developer's perspective, what are community benefit payments and under what conditions do communities receive them? Yeah, no, absolutely. We think it's a very important part of the renewable business within Scotland. And then community investment is when a developer reinvests part of the profits from either their hydro, solar, or prominently in Scotland, their on and offshore wind farm developments and reinvest that back into the local community. Excellent. So how much are we talking typically? I, I know this can vary because it typically depends on the size of the project. But, you know, I, I, from your perspective, dealing with all these different communities and different renewables projects, how much do communities typically receive? This is where it's very helpful in Scotland that Scottish government have given good practice principles that the industry should follow. And what they've stated is that developers should give away five £1,000 per megawatt of installed capacity per annum to the local community. And that's something at SSE Renewables that we are fully committed to. To give you a scale from us, now we are obviously only one developer within Scotland, but we are the largest. We are to date have given away £51 million to communities in Scotland. And over the lifetime of our current funds, we are due to give away £260 million to Scottish communities. So a big slug of cash. And I think just on this question around the £5,000 per megawatt of installed renewable power per annum, which is quite a mouthful to say, but you know, we can see that the bigger the project, the more money that the, the community gets. Can can this be, be higher or lower than this figure? Because this is this is voluntary and, as I understand it, guidance around the figure. Have you seen a variation around this? I think most within the industry recognise the value that Scottish government figures have, have given to us and certainly the, the larger developers we are committing to, to that figure. Within SSE Renewables, we have made it clear that this is the figure we would support mm-hmm. from 2012. That, that has been the position. There are some developers that, that would look at, at different mechanisms, but across Scotland, we are trying to create consistency and making sure that it's a fair donation into the communities. So most developers do commit to the, the £5,000 per megawatt. And these variations, I mean, obviously you've spoken about SSE's model, but um, and you know, maybe you can't speak necessarily about competitors and, and other industry partners, but what kinds of variations are we seeing in general terms? Are people approaching this in different ways? I mean, Ian did mention models out there where there was almost like a top up. I think he mentioned a royalty on how much that site generated in that year, for instance. I think that's referring to some historic sites that have been supported before the Scottish Government guidance came out. So the Scottish Government guidance came in 2012 and we were fundamental to helping shape that within SSE Renewables and committing to it. So before that guidance, there was inconsistency within the market because, you know, different developers were, were working on their market. But we were one of the early adopters of the £5,000 per megawatt. And that, by Scottish Government giving the, the guidance, it's helped there to be more standardisation across all communities and making sure they all get a fair investment into them. Fantastic. And Many people here will be sitting here, particularly uh, in areas without, you know, wind and hydro on, on their doorstep and without without these payments. Maybe and asking the question, why 
do we have these payments in the first place? What's the what's the rationale underpinning why these communities should 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 receive these payments? Yeah, I, I think that the payments are a very important part. You know, many of these communities are are highly rural and are being challenged by many issues that those of us in in urban areas aren't faced with. Particular issues around the skills um, and the ageing population. They are losing some of their core services and also these assets are within their community. They are visible in some senses from from their homes. When when, when farms are being constructed, they are are working with the, the developer as those are put forward. So it's very important that these investments reinvest into the areas in which the wind farms are located because they are the ones that have this asset and that are working with it day in and day out. Do you get a sense from your work over the years that that the communities recognise the connection between these funds and the projects or or sometimes does that need drawing out a little more? No, I, I think communities, it is part of the relationship with the developer. We are, are a big believer at the start, when we are building a wind farm, we consult strongly with the community. We liaise with the community of how they would like the funds to be set up. So, for example, sometimes they would choose to have a local panel where we will facilitate local people coming together and making the decisions on how the funding is spent in their areas. In others, we would use a trusted partner like the Fort Augusta and Glenmore and community company that you referenced but communities are are very aware where where the funding comes from and they're also very protective of that funding they know that this is an investment in their area and they want to be utilizing it to the best possible mechanism for their community you know they, they trust within that and they are wanting to make the most of the investment that's being made to their areas and I must say they, they over deliver it is incredible what communities can achieve with this funding no oh, that's great and so so yes please tell me what what kind of projects have uh, are you sort of most proud of I guess I, I think that's in, and it's what we've we've you know I've mentioned before that these are, are particularly highly rural communities so it's so one of the things we speak about at the first point when they're establishing a fund is doing a community consultation it's so important that they seek the views of everybody within the community to identify what are the main priorities for them now every community is unique but there are some themes that are particularly important across all communities for a long time it has been improving the assets that they have within their communities so I imagine Ian has spoken to you about the medical centre that that they have in Fort Augustus, but all communities are trying to make sure that they have the assets that are most important to them. For example, in the south of Scotland, in Abington, they had a derelict school and they've been supported through the wind farm funding to reinstate that back into life and have it as a a working hub that can be utilised for remote working for local residents. It has a gym within it and it has warm and safe meeting space for the community and that will be something they'll be able to benefit from for years to come. It is so important within rural communities that you have that central space where you can come together and you can meet and you have the assets and the materials that the others would have on their doorstep in more urban areas. Fantastic. I mean, Ian listed a number of them, but most of the stuff Ian was kind of coming to us with was interesting in that a lot of it was about the social fabric, which isn't isn't surprising because these are communities and they're social, social beasts, right? But I guess naively, I maybe came to this thinking, well, actually, I was expecting these kind of green payments, for want of a better word, to invest in other green stuff. And I'm sure that sure that happens. But 
it appeared that, that a lot of this was actually filling this void. These aren't his words, my interpretation. These long-term cuts in council investment had left these gaps. And it's actually these community benefit payments that are filling some of these on, on the community's terms. Is, is that a fair synopsis of what you're seeing or not? I don't think it's necessarily always filling gaps that, that they're doing. I think it's about how communities can enhance themselves. A lot of these communities have been faced with depopulation, so move it, people moving away from their areas. And this fund has been a, a mechanism to make sure that their communities remain attractive to families um, moving forward. For example, one of the common themes we have is around housing. A lot of the communities don't have houses that are affordable for young families and also that are of the correct stock for an ageing population. So we've worked with communities like Morven in the, the Highlands, Staffan on the Isle of Skye, and that's been where they've been developing highly efficient homes that people would want to stay within that local area. The community of Glenuckert and the, the Great Glen have built houses for people that are needing to downsize and have fully accessible homes that are, are near to, to the daycare that's available within that community. The housing is a very common theme. We've supported 23 homes to be built in the last year alone. Some of the other themes that are particularly important to these communities is around skills. So they want to make sure that young people don't have to move away to be able to get high quality jobs. They're also facing at the same time as wanting to make sure young people are there, they are facing that some of their key businesses are reliant on ageing population within the the local community. So a lot of our communities choose to develop apprenticeship programmes where they can link a young person with a local business, they can get high quality training and then as they develop there is the capacity that they could take over that business and retain that service within that local community and that's something that we've found has been very effective and is really recognised by the young people as, as part of what will make them stay within those local areas. And that, that's great to hear. And, and I, mean, I guess, as, as I was mentioning before, are there examples where you're seeing some of this, uh, these community benefit payment funds from renewable green projects, for want of a better word, going into other types of, of energy or even sustainability uh, your projects? Yeah, absolutely. It's As we say, said at the start, it, it depends on the community's action plans, um, but it's something that we have really noticed over the last two to three years. There's been a particular drive within communities about how do they prepare themselves for the transition to net zero. Um, it's something that we recognise as important, but they are leading on and developing the solutions. So, for example, one of our largest donations has been to the community of Rassi, which is the island off of Sky. And we've developed, uh, provided £300,000 to help them have a community-owned hydro system. Um, the island was off-grid and by them developing this hydro system, it provides the security of local energy that they've needed to attract businesses onto the island. We're also finding within other communities what they are looking to do is improve the energy efficiency of their community assets. So, for example, we've got a lot of projects that are looking at air source heat pumps. They are looking at solar provision. They are looking at how they reduce the carbon of their transport, because obviously they are highly 
rural, so they, they do rely on transport as a key mechanism. So, for example, there's there's a hub within Glen Urquhart where they are allowing people to trial having electric bikes. Also within the Great Glen, we are moving some of the care providers within that area so that they have electric vehicles rather than, than having diesel vehicles. But it's very much being a, a growth area. What is also very interesting around the green economy is that these funds are able to test innovation. So we've been really encouraging communities to think differently. There, there's a community in the, the west coast of, of the Highlands and it's an organisation called Grow for Good and they are actually testing what the capability of aquaponics would be. Uh, aquaponics is, is aquaponics is on uh, on land fish farms, is it? Yeah, so it's basically you are utilising it's, it's a, a cyclic nature where the waste from the fish can be utilised into the growing of of the the, um, the foods and then the waste from the foods can help into the fish and it's highly efficient as a mechanism. Fantastic. So a real rich tapestry of of projects. So I mean just one one thing that was was mentioned early by Ian is that there are some terms and conditions that are associated with this funding. Uh, so without getting kind of too detailed, are, are there any kinds of projects that have maybe come to you that you weren't prepared to fund or you didn't feel were in keeping with with the the ethos of of the community benefit payment funds i, I think within the community benefits we do we take it very responsibly so we, although we don't have many conditions onto the projects for example you know we do need some of the core fundamentals of a project to be in place we need things like their planning permission we we could give a an offer of a grant but we wouldn't allow them to draw down unless planning permission was in place we would also be supporting community groups to develop very robust business plans, particularly if they're developing a new asset, because we want to make sure that these assets leave the communities in a much stronger position within the long term. So we do a lot of work supporting them to make sure that these projects are viable and will continue to support the projects. But we have very few limitations on what we wouldn't fund. We try not to replace statutory funding. We don't pay on provision that's already happened. So it must be for something that's going to happen within the future. And we don't fund political or or religious provision, but it's very few limitations that are on the funds. Uh, Well, a couple more questions, Lindsay, because I mean, this this is really interesting. I think one of the grumbles I hear all the time from community groups, and I, I, I must say that I'm a, I'm a member of one myself, is is about capacity. They have all these wonderful ideas, but these these are, tend to be small groups, very volunteer based, more often than not. Um, do you see these community benefit payments could be spent on capacity building within these these groups? Because without the capacity, the projects can't can't happen. No, absolutely, it's one of our core funding principles within SSE Renewables is that we are facilitating project development. So we are are very focused. We recognise communities are incredible. They have strength of ideas. They are proven time and time again to deliver, but they do need the capacity to be able to do do that. We don't want to overstretch the volunteers and we want to help them get the specialist skills they would need to deliver some of these projects. So we're very supportive on funding core costs for provision. We do a lot of work where we are facilitating networks between communities and between different organisations so that they can learn from each other. We embed training and support for these organisations so that we can enhance what they're able to deliver. But it's very 
very important, you know, and it has to be recognised that that they need support. We can't expect volunteers to be doing this alone. They do need to have the support to make these projects happen. Quite right. And, and there's obviously so many examples here you've outlined of community benefit, lasting community benefit across sort of social, economic and environmental. But maybe turning this on its head to developers such as SSE, but also more broadly that, that kind of sector, what do you see the benefit to yourselves of of making these payments, of building these relationships? What, how 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 do you, for want of a better word, benefit? I, I think that it is about being a responsible developer. We we view ourselves as being part of these communities. Our our assets are there for up to 25 years. We want to be working within these communities. We want to be making sure that these communities are left in a better place thanks to the renewable assets that they have in their local area. So for ourselves, it's about building that trust. It's about building that relationship with communities and for them to be seeing that that we want to be working. We want to be making sure that they are thriving and they're a place that people would want to, to live and work in. That's that's really you know important to hear. And if I may just end on on this question before I I, I let you go, this you mentioned twenty twelve. Some of the key fundamentals of of how these benefit payments work in Scotland, we might add, you know, were, were laid down. Uh, I guess there's there's been reflections and learnings on on how well this has worked. It sounds like there's been a lot of benefit has has, has come out of this. Not just hearing from yourself, but also from from communities such as those in Fort Augustus and Glamoriston. Are there any reflections on what what final reflections on what works well about this versus what what maybe is ripe for reform and, and areas that that could you know learning could be applied to to generate even more community benefit into the, into the future no absolutely I, I think the main reflection now we have just completed uh um, wind farm fund for Beatrice, which is an offshore wind farm in Scotland. And we did do an evaluation there to understand what the communities felt from it. And, and it was overwhelmingly positive. You know, 92% of the projects funded have a lasting legacy within the community. 100% of the people that participated in the programme would recommend it as a funding scheme, but there is always learning that we could have. I think probably as an industry, we need to be better at sharing the success of these programmes. They are highly impactful and make a real difference within the areas that we are operating within, but there there sometimes aren't known with those host communities. So we need to be doing more about sharing that learning and that benefit with people. And going forward, the funds are very flexible. Uh, you know, we can't expect that communities are going to to stay still. We need them to be able to to move with the times and with the priorities of the communities. We saw that during the the pandemic, where we were able to release emergency funding. That has changed what some of the communities want to be able to deliver upon, and and we need to focus on that. But it is very clear to us that you need to trust communities. They they do know how to deliver these funds well, and it needs to focus on the communities that are nearest to those wind farms. Maybe that begs us what final follow-up is about the communities that aren't necessarily in the backyard of these wind farms, but maybe aren't aren't necessarily able to tap into this these benefit payments. Is is there a sense of how we might be able to support those through these funds into the future? 
I think if you look at the, the reach of Scotland and, and what they are able to achieve, the funds do cover large proportions of Scotland. You know, we have funds that are available across local authority areas. So the whole of the Highlands is covered, the whole of South Lanarkshire, other developers have them across Ayrshire and Dumfries and Galloway. The whole of Scotland is also able to, to benefit from things like the investment we make in the Crown Estate through our offshore wind farms. That is, is available across Scotland. But we also need to to make sure that these communities are able to test how to deliver within services within rural areas and then they can share that learning with other communities. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. It's fantastic to hear about the, the work you're undertaking and uh, yeah, it'd be wonderful to have you back again soon to hear, hear how these communities have got on. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate it. Well, a big thanks to Ian and Lindsay. What a fantastic episode and exploring a subject which is very close to my heart and one that I've wanted to learn a lot more about for a very long time. Um, You've been listening to Local Zero. If you'd like to contact us, connect with us, provide us insights and thoughts about this episode and maybe the things you'd like us to cover off in the future, please, please follow us on Twitter at LocalZeroPod. Leave some of your thoughts there. If you want to send a longer email, please do so at LocalZeroPod at gmail.com. But until the next episode, thank you for listening and goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.